I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. And thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Cullen Burke. I'm going to throw some quick housekeeping at you, and then we'll get right to it. So please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps to get you the content you want. For exclusive content and special episodes, go to patreon.com. Check us out at cauldronpodcast.com. Send us your thoughts and theories and click on the current campaign page to check out the road ahead and see what battles we have coming up. For visual aid, there are some excellent images and maps on the map room uh, on the website. And check us out on Instagram. We're starting to uh, make more regular posts. And for this Battlecast, I used a variety of sources. But I found three to be clearest in terms of telling the story of World War I and the Somme specifically. I used John Keegan's The First World War, which is a classic and should be on every history buff's bookshelf. And uh, William Philpott's Three Armies on the Somme is an excellent modern look at the battle in depth. And University of Nebraska Press's World History of Warfare does a great job of reducing the information down to a digestible amount for non-historians such as myself. All right, that's enough of the business. Let's get stuck in. Now... As some of you know, and the rest of you will learn, I am a shameless Churchill fanboy. So Churchill is one of the few people that could say they played a role at the highest levels of decision-making and also saw fighting on the front lines of the Great War. Churchill said, quote, One lives calmly on the brink of the abyss, but I can understand how tired people get of it as it goes on month after month. All the excitement dies away, and there is only dull resentment, end quote. So with that marinating, let's take a trip back in time, 102 years to be precise, to the beautiful French countryside of Picardy in the peak of summer, to the trenches filled with Poilu, Tommies, and the Bosch, all just trying to live life in the face of constant death. To a place where Great Britain would see her young men cut down like never before in her long history. Let's go back to July 1st, 1916, and the Battle of the Somme.
1914, a war that had been brewing for decades and that had innumerable causes engulfed Europe. Throughout the 1800s, a fragile network of checks and balances had been built between all the nations of Europe. This house of cards was more of a house of toothpicks, ready to collapse or go up in flames at any point in time. As the 19th century drew to an end, the nations that stood tallest were Britain, the naval and economic leader of the world, France, who had a massive and strong army, Germany, the upstart country constantly seeking a quarrel, and decadently decaying Russia with the world's largest, if of questionable quality, army. The German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck had done an incredible job of using the carrot and the stick method when dealing with not just foreign governments, but with his own people as well. His ability to promise power to the populace of Germany and play nice with the other countries is what kept the power of Germany with its growing industrial capabilities and a patriotic population that was growing at a ridiculous rate from exploding all over Europe earlier than it did. Located in Central Europe, Germany sat right between 1 and 1A of the world's largest armies, and her northern coast, which is where all her trade and raw materials came through, was menaced by the world's best and largest navy. To offset this shaky geopolitical situation, Germany sought to make mutual protection treaties that would ensure support from other countries in case of war. Key among these allies were the two senile, decrepit old empires of Europe, the Austrians and the Ottomans. The central powers, as they were known, would, if and when war broke out, face off against the Triple Entente, made up of Britain, France, and Russia. Both main alliances had a number of small allied nations on their sides as well, and it's one of these little states that would set off the explosion that would engulf the world. On June 28th, the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. What followed was a series of ultimatums, threats, and promises, essentially an international pissing contest that no one knew how to end. You see, with these massive modern armies that each country had, some numbering hundreds of divisions and millions of men, there was no easy way to stop mobilization once it had started and getting the armies turned around once the orders had been given was almost impossible. With the efficiency of the modern war colleges and general staffs added to the speed and power of the railways, the armies of 1914 were going to war, whether anyone liked it or not. As the armies of the world moved into position, the Germans unleashed the long-planned for a meticulously plotted out Schlieffen plan. This is up there with the Constitution, Magna Carta, and the Torah, Koran, and Bible as one of history's most important documents. Schlieffen was a German general who had the idea that instead of fighting a war on both fronts, the Germans should knock the French out of the war ASAP and then turn to fight a now-alone Russia with its poorly kitted conscript armies. Schlieffen would tinker with it to the day he died, his dying words supposedly being about not moving divisions from one place to another for fear of weakening the all-important initial thrust. Would it have worked in its original form? We will never know, because it was tweaked 
through the years, and the swinging force that went through Belgium was not nearly as strong as the plan had originally called for. The Germans invaded plucky little Belgium and gouged deep into French territory, only to be stopped by Papa Joffre and his miracle on the Marne. As the positions of each army stabilized, the Entente and German armies found that the lines and the war itself had become stagnant. After the titanic initial struggle for the West had settled down, both sides began to dig in. In the East, where the war was more mobile and fluid, a modern canny had happened. A German army much smaller in size had almost totally surrounded and annihilated a larger Russian army in the field. The architects of this military feat were Erich Ludendorff and Paul von Hindenburg, both who we will see later. By 1916, both sides knew the war would be settled one way or another on the Western Front, and for Germany, time was running out. Recognizing that the almost unlimited wealth and material power of the Entente, Germany decided to go after a resource far more priceless, the French soldiers themselves. Hoping to break French morale and bodies, the German general Erich von Falkenhayn, in overall command of the German armies, ordered an exhaustive series of ghastly attacks on the French fortress city of Verdun. This meat grinder was supposed to cause so much death that France would collapse under the horror. What ended up happening is that the French rose to the occasion, eventually giving as good as they got and holding the line, even in time retaking their lost territory. Side note here, we will definitely go over the Battle of Verdun at some point, but in the meantime, check out the Battle of Verdun podcast for Mike's incredibly researched takes. So, both sides suffered grievously, but Germany could not sustain the losses the way the Entente could, and everyone knew it. The Entente plan for the summer of 1916 was to attack Germany on every front, probing for soft spots like a smart shopper looking for the best avocado. Russia would hit with what had turned out to be the highly effective Brusilov offensive. The Italians would once again doggedly attack the Asanzo River, and what was supposed to be a massive offensive by the French and British would now be a large offensive starring the boys of Britain. The place chosen for this big push was far enough away to pull pressure off of the French at Verdun, and it would take place in the grassy rolling farmlands of Picardy, France's Somme River region. Before we get to the battle itself, I think it's important to talk a little about trenches. Trench digging in warfare has been around for as long as cities have existed, as they have been most commonly and effectively used in sieges, and if you think of the Western Front as one gigantic siege, you wouldn't be very far off. But according to the university press's world history of warfare, trenches were only really used in modern offensive war in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. 
and were only ever truly prominent during World War I. Because of the firepower, range, and accuracy of modern weapons, the generals on both sides needed to somehow hide their men, but keep them in play for immediate action when needed. The first trenches on the Western Front were no taller than an average man's height, and were prone to collapse under artillery fire or simply from heavy rain. Engineers eventually supported the trench walls with wood braces, sometimes even concrete or steel, And then to try and keep the men out of the muck, they put down duckboards on the ground to give them a raised walkway. From the attacker's view, there was just the piled-up excavated earth making a parapet and the chaotic coils of barbed wire in front. But from the defender's side, there was a buzzing little world in the trench networks. With each side giving pet names to different sections, like uh, on the Somme, the British had a trench named Yankee, Yellow, and one named Yiddish. And uh, they named the German trenches opposite them Fall, Fate, Fern, and Ferret. It was almost like being in a city with its various street names. The men would um, try like hell to make the conditions as livable as possible. In some instances, having brass beds brought in, uh, carpets were put down, and wallpaper and electric lights were put up. Any seemingly simple creature comforts helped morale. And morale was a constant issue when you lived in a hole a hundred yards away from death's constant presence. And that death came in many guises. Anything that popped up above the trench line was fair game for pot shots from rifles and the ever-present snipers. In fact, the Germans would leave snipers in the same zone instead of cycling them with their units like the Allies. This was so that the snipers on the German side would get very familiar with the Entente trenches and their routine. Aside from this somewhat passive death of snipers and potshots, there were trench raids uh, to contend with, which involved clubs, knives, shotguns, trench mortars, and vicious hand-to-hand contests. And always lurking over the trench line was the embodiment of the new mechanical age itself, the machine gun. Ever-present and watchful, the machine gun on the front were always bursting into the mad, repetitive laughter of machines bringing death to man. At the outset of the war, there were typically only two to a battalion, but it soon became obvious that these modern monsters were worth more than a thousand men, and entire units of just machine gun teams became the norm in most armies. The defensive power was unparalleled, with the water-cooled British Vickers and German Maxim capable of firing off a belt of 250 rounds. This massive killing ability was all the more impressive when added to an incredible, for the time, 500 to 600 rounds per minute. Though heavy enough to require special carriages or even mules to carry them, these weapons were the most deadly force on the field for the common infantrymen the most heinous aspect of trench warfare, which was the use of gas, which could and did strangle men to death in agonizing, demonic attacks that would contort and break the body and caused eyes to bleed and bulge from the head. Just witnessing these coughing, gagging, hacking deaths could strike men with such fear they became incapacitated. When gas didn't choke you to death, it could blind, even permanently, and cause such severe health issues that men affected would struggle with health issues for the rest of their lives, some even succumbing after the war to death or suicide. 
Add to these horrors the ever-present mud and damp which would drown soldiers right in their spot. And then you had the diseases which would cause trench foot and trench mouth and countless other diseases. And they were all spread with enthusiasm by the hordes of rats and their constant companion, the flea. And it is astounding that anyone survived the war at all. In 1916, the plan had been to, in concert with the Entente forces, launch multiple offenses on the German lines. Because of the Verdun slaughter, the planned joint British-French offensive of some 40 French and 25 British divisions meant to attack over a front of almost 40 miles long had to be scaled way back. With the weight of the attack now largely on the British, the scope of the initial offensive changed to 14 divisions with four in reserve, made up of, for the most part, Lord Kitchener's volunteers, sprinkled with some Commonwealth units. There was also a small force of five French divisions, with six in reserve, mostly of seasoned men, and they would be working and succeeding in the southern sector of the battle to come. In overall command was the man in charge of the BEF, or British Expeditionary Force. Sir John Haig, a religious, steady, and quiet man of little imagination, but unparalleled faith in himself and the Lord. He would use the British 3rd, 4th, and 5th Armies as his sword on the Somme. They would be faced by seven German divisions under Prince Rupert of Bavaria and General von Bülow. The updated plan called for a push along 18 miles of front, which would be preceded by seven days of intense bombardment. Around 1,400 to 2,200 artillery pieces would fire 1.7 million rounds over this time period. And by my simpleton math, that's around 148 shells per square acre. The hope was to destroy the enemy machine gun positions, cut the enemy's barbed wire, and fracture the psyche of the men in the German trenches. Once the Germans were smothered by artillery, then the infantry would move forward with the force field of a creeping barrage, which essentially was uh, an artillery bombardment that would move forward ahead of the advancing infantry, keeping the Germans pinned down without ideally affecting the British infantry following it up. In theory, the the British infantry would get to the German trenches before the German infantry had regained their senses and manned their positions. Then the Entente forces would push into the gap the barrage had created, widen it, flank the enemy, and head for the town of Arras, with an end goal of the town of Cambrai. Haig believed in manpower over firepower, and he was hoping his men would walk across no man's land and find all the enemy trenches, for the most part, empty. Needless to say, that's not what happened.
The hour before the whistles blew, which was the most advanced way and most consistent way of communicating the order to attack at the time, was the most intense artillery barrage thus far, with 1,500 guns firing some 600,000 shells. Again, simpleton math says that's 10,000 shells a minute. British pilot Cecil Lewis, flying over the battlefield during the barrage, said, quote, Half an hour to go. The whole salient from Beaumont Hamill to the marshes of the Somme covered to a depth of several hundred yards with the coverlet of white wool. Smoking shell bursts. It was the greatest bombardment of the war, the greatest in the history of the world. The clock hands crept on. The thrumming of the shells took on a higher note. It was now a continuous vibration. Nothing could live under the reign of splintering steel, end quote. It was hugely impressive, and it did rattle the Germans in their deep dugouts, some saying that the constant vibrations and continuous ear-shattering noise induced a sort of body and mind delirium. But to say it was ultimately ineffectual is an understatement. That same pilot, Lewis, would log in his books, quote, From our point of view, an entire failure. There must be a colossal lack of organization somewhere. End quote. There was, as the communication between batteries and spotters was at best spotty, not to mention that the guns were not firing the right ammunition. There was a high proportion of shrapnel shells being fired, which means the shell would burst just above the ground, sending off thousands of deadly bits of metal, which worked great on masses of men, but had little to no effect on the German barbed wire. There was also the issue of the British having inexperienced gunners, which was compounded by the fact that there was a high percentage of duds that were being fired. Maybe, I read one source that said maybe as high as 25%. Worse still was the fact that the Germans had dug deep, in some places 40 feet deep, and with all their Prussian attention to detail, they had built their defenses strong with the intent of staying. In an attempt to shock and awe the Germans, as well as manipulate the battlefield in their favor, British sappers, or engineers, had planted 19 mines up and down the entire front. Some of these mines were massive, including two which were made up of 60,000 pounds of ammonal, which, according to a quick wiki wiki search, is an explosive made of ammonium nitrate and aluminum powder. The ammonium nitrate functions as an oxidizer and the aluminum as fuel. The idea was to create huge holes in the enemy line, And then the British infantry would swarm into the craters, run up the other side, and set up firing positions on the lip of the crater closest to the Germans. When the attack was ready near La Boiselle, the mines blew at exactly 728, creating the Lochnagar Crater, which is over 300 feet across and 70 feet deep. The explosion vomited mud and debris 4,000 feet into the air, even hitting the plane of that Captain Lewis we heard from earlier. The noise created by this explosion was considered the loudest man-made sound to that point, with claims of people in London over 200 miles away having heard the explosion. These two holes in the earth would swallow countless men in the ensuing fight, evaporating the Germans that had been standing on top of or near the mines when they exploded. 
So when the whistles blew at 7.30 a.m., the first British infantrymen started to climb out of the trenches, known as going over the top. And they were shocked to see the Germans scramble out of their dugouts and begin to man their positions almost as if on cue. The Germans were not unscathed by the barrage and mines, but they had been able to weather these attacks in their strongly built dugouts. Even their trench lines and machine gun posts had been constructed so well that they were still for the most part fully functioning. The British attempted creeping barrage was a failure as the artillery moved too far ahead of the British infantry's walking pace, which had been ordered and held to with an inhuman adherence to command. It must have been a breathtaking scene for the first Germans to reach the trench lines, look out before the shooting started, and see these perfect little lines of men, waves of what must have appeared to be tin soldiers plodding totally upright, even though they were weighed down with a kit of over almost 70 pounds. Before the British even reached the, in some places, 500 to 800 yards of no-man land that they had to cross, they had to contend with their own barbed wire, which sadly would be the death of many. Crossing the hated no-man's land was terrible. Junior officer Henry Williamson said of it, quote, I see men arising and walking forward, and I go forward with them in a glassy delirium, wherein some seem to pause with bowed heads and sink carefully to their knees and roll slowly over and lie still. Others roll and roll and scream and grip my legs in uttermost fear, and I have to struggle to break away while the dust and earth on my tunic changes from gray to red. End quote. The fields of Picardy provided no real cover, and so these slow-moving columns and waves were forced to just weather the lead storm the German machine guns were throwing at them. Worse still, when they did cross the killing fields and reached the enemy barbed wire, the process of cutting and moving the wire forced the infantry to bunch and clump up, unwittingly creating perfect targets for the Germans to pour fire into. After the mines blew, 12 battalions of the 34th Division were ordered to attack the now weakened German position. Stunned but not incapacitated, the Germans and their machine guns still held the high ground, a position at a gradual rise roughly 60 feet above the British. The fighting was fierce and barbaric around and in the craters up and down the battle line. The 34th Division would suffer the worst on July 1st, losing 6,380 officers and men in these lunar man-made pockmarks. Not far off, in what was called the Glory Hole, another moonscape of enormous shell holes and mine craters, the Northumberland Fusiliers were ordered to attack, again advancing with no cover. The Pipers played the men on until they themselves were killed or wounded, and the Fusiliers were gutted, getting raked with German fire over and over to the tune of 80% casualties in just 10 minutes, one battalion losing 537 men alone. In the north sector of the battlefield, some of the PALS divisions, which were these units that were made up of men from the same towns or villages, often large groups of friends and family members, having joined and, and volunteered at the same time, uh, one a great example is the Grimsby Chum. So these PALS divisions were ordered uh, in it to make an attempt to attack uphill and take the village of Serre. 
They had been ordered to march in line and keep formation. They had been specifically ordered not to run at the enemy positions until they were within 50 to 60 yards. They would lose 3,600 casualties in minutes, one eyewitness calling it monotonous mutual mass murder. These PALS divisions had the benefit of excellent morale and unit cohesion due to the fact that there was often many deep and long-lasting bonds, but the major downside was that the entire village could lose all the sons involved in that offensive in one shell burst. Not to mention the blow to morale when only a few men survived and had to deal with the loss of all their lifelong friends. An attack on the hamlet of Beaumont Hamill featured the 1st Newfoundland Regiment being ordered out of reserve and into the front line. Unfortunately, reserve typically means the unit is being held in the rear, and so it was in this case. And as the Newfoundland Regiment tried to move up, they realized the trenches were far too clogged with men and equipment for them to get to where they needed to be. The only solution was to get out of the safety of the trenches and move in the open, which made them easy targets for German gunners, and so a large number of the Newfoundland soldiers were picked off before even reaching the British barbed wire. Somehow, there were men that survived and were able to cross no man's land in the face of withering fire. But upon reaching their objective, the Newfoundland Regiment had suffered 91% casualties. There were massacres of British youth happening all over the battlefield, from Ouye and Gomcourt to the destruction of the British forces attacking at Thiepville. By midday, over 100,000 men were involved across the entire battlefront, and the British alone would see almost 60,000 casualties. Known as the single worst day in British Army history, July 1st was brutal, bloody, and harrowing for everyone involved. This single day had a profound effect on an entire generation of artists, poets, historians, and journalists, and would change the British psyche for decades to come, scarring the entire nation forever. And though the first was a horror show of death and destruction, and the hoped-for breakthrough never occurred, the Battle of the Somme would continue, and in a way, achieve its overall goal. In the southern sector, the French found considerably more success than the British counterparts. Using the hard-learned lessons of Verdun, the French used a combination of small units attacking small objectives in almost modern fire-and-move tactics, along with massively outgunning the Germans in heavy artillery to the tune of 85 heavy artillery units on the French side to a German 8. The British divisions on the first day lost some 4,000 casualties per division, while the French lost around 450 men per division. 
This disparity of casualties between British divisions on the first day and French is definitely a testament to the clearly better planned out offensive in the southern sector. The Battle of the Somme itself would continue after July 1st for another 150 days and would see a downsizing of the major attacks. Over the 150 days, there would be countless small but highly effective attacks on the German lines, some even in position to capture large tracts of land, but due to fierce counterattacks and poor reinforcement, the much-needed breakout never materialized. On July 14th, 22,000 Brits would punch a 6,000-yard hole in the German trenches, but without the necessary follow-up, stagnation and attrition remained. Proving that the generals were ad- adapting and becoming more and more willing to try anything, a September offensive would change warfare forever and show the world the future. The tank rolled onto the battlefield at a plodding pace, About as fast as a man's walk, slow for sure, but the advantages of armor were quickly realized. Even with nine of the 31 tanks involved becoming immobilized from mechanical failure, and five tanks ending up flipped over from trying to navigate deep trenches, the ones that functioned properly provided the infantry with mobile cover. Protecting the infantry across no man's land, shielding the men from the machine guns of the Germans, as well as using their own weapons to keep the German infantry pinned, helping the attacking British make great gains. The resulting fear and blow to morale of the Germans that had to face down these land battleships was just a cherry on the top. By November, the weather had changed and winter was coming. A combination of sleet and mud made war-making impossible. The mud becoming so bad, in fact, that some veterans of both the Somme and Passchendaele would claim the Somme's mud to be more deadly and harder to deal with. After five months of almost constant activity, the Somme sector of the Western Front was unofficially shut down. Both sides would keep an exhausted, weary eye on each other, but for the time being, the Somme went quiet. The overall cost of the Somme is really impossible to figure. The numbers on the first day alone are staggering, with the British suffering 57,470 total casualties. That's 19,240 killed in action, 35,493 wounded in action, 2,152 missing in action, and 585 taken as prisoner. Some sources I read estimated that there were 30,000 casualties in the first hour alone. Near Gomkor, British killed in action averaged 1,000 men for every 1,000 yards. 
it's likely that 60% of officers and 40% of all British men involved were killed in action on July 1st. The losses were so astoundingly high for a number of reasons. One being the poor tactics, but the other being the deadly efficiency of the Maxim machine gun, which was responsible for 90% of the casualties on day one. The Germans would fare better on the 1st of July, but within a few days they saw their casualties start to pile up as well, quickly reaching 40,000. As the battle slogged on and became a charnel house, more and more British families would receive the dreaded telegram that started with, quote, it is my painful duty to inform you, end quote. By the end of November, the British had amassed some 400,000 plus total casualties, 25,000 of those from the various Commonwealth forces, which included Australians, New Zealanders, South Africans, Indians, Canadians, and even a volunteer regiment from Bermuda. The French, having a lighter load to carry throughout the battle, suffered less, but still had a whopping 200,000 casualties to add to the Butcher's Bill of 1916, the year that had already seen so much Poilu blood spilt at Verdun. As deadly as the Somme had been for the Entente forces, the Germans had it worse. 500,000 German men that were completely irreplaceable for the Central Powers were casualties by the end of the battle. The loss of men and material, in German the material slot, swayed the Kaiser to remove the German commander Falkenhayn. It was Falkenhayn who had ordered his men to fight for every inch of the trench line, and in the process ensured the huge losses would be sustained. In need of a new high command, the Kaiser pulled his star tag team from the east, Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff and gave them essentially total power over the military and, in fact, the country itself. It was Ludendorff that would call the Somme the graveyard of the German army. He recognized that the entire method of trench fighting had to change if Germany wanted to stay in the war long enough to see it decided whether or not they win or lose or even survive at all. From the Somme on, German forces would use a tactical defense-in-depth method, giving ground to enemy attacks and staying on the defensive until the attacker was extended and exhausted. Then the Germans would mount fierce counterattacks, reclaiming the lost ground, all the while inflicting heavy casualties. This process would change warfare forever and essentially create the modern battlefield. Unfortunately, it would also prolong the war for another two years. The Somme was, by all accounts, one of the worst battles in recorded history. But it was not, as some historians have claimed, a total failure. In fact, the Somme can be seen in a way as the success that led to the development of new tactics and techniques that would in fact win the war. The methods used by the end of November on the Somme would be disseminated all along the Western Front and put into action over and over until the German army was forced into an armistice. 
the painful trial and error process that led to such high casualties was in all likelihood unavoidable. And although certainly deserving of some blame, the generals in charge of the British Army are not solely responsible for the slaughter on the Somme. The battle served as an evolutionary leap in the conduct of war and would lead to overall victory, but the effect on the people of Britain was at a very high price. The British became a far more cynical and sad people, and with good reason. The diaries and books by Somme veterans were massively popular and brought all the tragedy of the war directly to the populace back home. In fact, some of the writings produced by Somme veterans have directly changed the world. Hitler, Tolkien, the poet Sassoon, Graves and Blunden, and even Otto Frank, who would publish his daughter's diary after the war to come, all passed through the Somme at some point. The effect of the battle can still be felt today. Even now, a hundred years later, farmers in the region will from time to time dig up the bones of the fallen and with great care and respect see to their proper burial. These unidentified men join the rest of the fallen and never found or claimed in one of the many graveyards that dot the area and are wonderfully maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and the local populations. The massive monument at Thiepville, with its 72,337 names chipped into the stone, stands to mourn the men with no known grave. Thanks for listening. After the look ahead bit is a story about the psalm I think you'll like, so stick around. That was the Battle of the Psalm, exhausting to research and really one of the more depressing battles to go over, but incredible to dig into and really think about. So with that in mind, shoot me some theories about what you think would have happened had the British broken out on that first day. What does 1917 look like if the British win this battle? And what does Germany do? Do they collapse? Do they regain ground? Uh, it's tough to say. Think about it and send it in. Go to your theories uh, or go to the Your Theories page at cauldronpodcast.com and send me what you think. So the next battle cast is going to be a little more modern and much smaller of an episode. We're going to cover the July 1976 operation Thunderbolt, otherwise known as the Raid on Entebbe. Should be lots of interesting little factoids and info to get stuck in on. So thanks for listening. And again, from here on out, whenever possible, I'm going to wrap up the battle cast with a quick little story about the battle itself. This one comes from uh, Max Hastings' great accounts um, in his wonderful collection of military anecdotes. Quote, The epitome of tragic contrast between the spirit and reality of the Battle of the Somme lay in the footballers of zero hour on 1 July 1916. The practice has been attributed to several units at different times, but the best documented episode 
inspired by Captain W.P. Neville of the 8th East Surrey. Neville was a young officer who liked to stand on the fire step each evening and shout insults at the Germans. His men were to be in the first wave of the assault on Mount Bonn, and he was concerned as to how they would behave, for they had never taken part in an attack before. While he was on leave, Neville bought four footballs, one for each of his platoons. Back in the trenches, he offered a prize to the first platoon to kick his football up to the German trenches on the day of the attack. One platoon painted the following inscription on his ball, The Great European Cup, the final, East Surrey's vs. Bavarians, kickoff at zero. Neville himself kicked off, quote, As the gunfire died away, wrote a survivor, I saw an infantryman climb onto the parapet into no man's land, beckoning others to follow. As he did so, he kicked off a football. A good kick. The ball rose and traveled towards the German line. That seemed to be the signal for advance. End quote. The winning footballers of the 8th East Surrey's were unable to collect the prize money from their commander. Captain Neville was dead. Martin Middlebrook.